Okay, let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the dear brothers and sisters of Providence Reformed Church. We thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us your word. And not only simply that we would grow intellectually, but that you would change our hearts and minds even as we sit here. We pray that this would be an act of worship from us, that even from the preacher, that this would be him worshiping in your word and that together as a church that we too would be worshiping as we are expository and careful listeners of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. For many of us, yesterday was a somber day. It's strange to think about, but there may be 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds in this congregation that they, they remember 9-11 not as a memory, September 11th, 2001, but, but more of a historical event. But for a good chunk of us, we remember where we were when we first heard. For me, it was a homeroom, a freshman year of high school. And that's all we did that day in every class, was watch what was going on. Two decades ago yesterday, 19 terrorists hijacked four commercial airliners mid-flight. At 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 17 minutes after that, United Airlines Flight 175 hit the South Tower on live television. Within an hour and 42 minutes, both of these 110 story towers just collapsed. At 9.37, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the west side of the Pentagon. And then at 10.03, after an attempt by the passengers to retake control of United 93, it crashed onto a field in Pennsylvania. At the end, it was nearly 3,000 deaths and 25,000 injuries. But for us, it was a day that was marked by pure evil. It was devastating. And yet it wasn't the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 that even prompted this sermon. No, what prompted it was, was a brain-searing image of a young man just plummeting off of a commercial flight in a desperate attempt to escape the Taliban. It was the headline of, of the Taliban killing a female police officer just for being a female police officer in front of her family. It was the, the tweet reporting a message from our brothers and sisters that are trapped in Afghanistan that they are being hunted down for being Christian. And beyond that, evil is happening every day and everywhere. Listen to these headlines. Hospital nurse facing sexual assault charges named in lawsuit involving prior allegation. Flags honoring 13 U.S. service members killed in Kabul airport attack vandalized in California. Oregon police charge man in cold case murder of his wife 25 years after her body discovered. Two elementary school-aged children among four dead in Ohio home, police say. Michigan dad who made kill list amid bitter divorce kills son, age three before turning gun on himself. And friends, that was all just from Wednesday. And beyond the headlines and beyond the history, you personally face evil in your life. 
probably you or somebody that you know has been sexually or otherwise abused as a child or has been beaten as a spouse. And we've all probably been lied to and cheated and stolen from and betrayed. So you know the pain that is caused by evil. And it probably prompts at some point in your life this question, why, God? Why does God allow those things to happen? And for some, it's, it's an even bigger problem. They conclude there can be no God because either, they say, he is unable to stop evil, which makes him not all-powerful, or he is able and doesn't, making him not all-good, they say, and it hardens their hearts against him. But even for we who trust in God, Still, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to think through for us. Is God totally in control? And if he is totally in control, how could he allow a three-year-old to be killed by his own father before his father commits suicide? If he is totally in control, is he perfectly good in allowing that? Several false ideas about God have been formulated to try to deal with this so-called problem of evil. There's the deist idea that, that God created, but then he just kind of takes his hands off. He doesn't intervene. He just watches a drama unfold. That is not satisfying to me. Then there's this idea that, that places free will above everything else so as to say that God would not violate people's free will and therefore evil happens. Again, that's not satisfying because that places that father's free will above the protection of his three-year-old son. That's unbiblical. That's unsatisfying. There's open theism, which suggests that God has placed himself in a place where he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He feels for you in your trouble, but he's just as surprised as you are that this happened. And then, of course, there's the Greek gods, and uh, they may be powerful, but they're not good. They're just as lascivious and violent as humankind. All of those are unsatisfying, unbiblical, untrue. There's only one satisfying option There's only one that can give us true comfort, and that is the true and living God, the God of the Bible, the God that does ordain evil things to happen for the greater good. Before we can continue, let's let's define this word ordain. It's not one that that we use on day-to-day language, unless you're a theologian or like theology. Merriam-Webster defines ordain in a range of meaning, And one definition is to establish or order by appointment, decree, or law. To establish or order by appointment, decree, or law. And if we were to ask the question, does God ordain evil in that way, we would say yes and no. God has decreed all that will happen from beginning to end, but he has not commanded that evil be done. God hates evil. God is against evil. So he does not ordain evil 
in the sense of approving or being approving of it. But he does ordain evil in the sense of deciding that evil will happen and when. Another definition that Merriam-Webster gives is destine or foreordain. And with that definition, yes, God does ordain evil. He does destine evil. He does foreordain evil. Now, the aim of this sermon is, is to show you, dear brothers and sisters of Providence, that God does ordain evil and how that's true and how we see that in the scriptures. And also to show you how that's a good thing, how it's actually a good thing. And I'll give you the same warning that I gave my church this morning. That we want to deliver this information to you, but not for the sake of information. I think that Pastor Travis and the elders would, would also agree that it is not acceptable to pursue doctrine just for the sake of doctrine or to pursue knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, you see, but love builds up. If this doctrine that is going to be dis, uh, uh, described in this sermon does not change your heart or mind or strengthen you and change how you live your life and worship God, then you haven't understood the doctrine. And that's true about every doctrine. So don't let this be, if, if you've already embraced this and you're like, I'm already driving with you, don't let this be where you're saying, yeah, Ed, get those semi-Pelagians, right? This is not what this is for. You need this doctrine for your life because you are facing evil right now or you will face some evil in the future. And how will you respond? There are those who have claimed Christianity before 9-11 and then fell away after you need to be girded and prepared and strengthened for the evil that you will certainly face in this life to come. And so that is the true aim of the sermon. But before we get to the meat of it, let's, let's establish something that is important and foundational. And that is, God does not force people to do evil. God does not force people to do evil. Chapter 3 of the 1689 Baptist Confession is, is helpful here. Here's what it says. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. In other words, Though God ordains everything that happens, he does it in a way where he doesn't force someone to do something against his or her will. Now, that's the confession. But as you would probably agree, the confession is only good in as much as it is biblical, right? So one of the, the, the verses that they cite is James 1.13. James 1.13. In this list of proverbial sayings in James chapter 1, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when someone is tempted to sin, he should not say, God is tempting me. And the reason why is that God himself cannot be tempted with evil. He has no desire for evil whatsoever. Therefore, he is not pleased when people choose evil. Therefore, he wouldn't tempt someone to do evil. He tempts no one. So, as we carefully, prayerfully observe in the scriptures, 
how God ordains evil, we need to be clear right here at the outset that God doesn't make anyone sin. He doesn't force them to do it, nor is he ever pleased by sin. Now, having laid this important foundation, we'll answer two questions in this sermon. The first one is, how do we know that God ordains evil? And that's, that's where we're going to spend most of our time, by the way. So if like 30 to 40 minutes from now, I just finish point one of two, just know that at that point, we'll almost be done with a sermon. All right. So, so don't be discouraged by that. We'll spend most of our time with this question. And then the second question that we'll, we'll follow up with is, why is it a good thing that he does ordain evil? So this first question, how do we know that God ordains evil? There are two ways that we know. A, God ordains everything. He ordains everything. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul is is outlining the spiritual blessings that every believer has in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we who believe in Christ are united with Christ in such a way that we can, we can say, and it can be said of us, that we are in him. And we who are in him have obtained an inheritance by virtue of being made God's children in Christ. It's an inheritance of eternal life in his presence. The reason that we have that inheritance, according to verse 11 of Ephesians 1, is that we were predestined. That word predestined means to determine the outcome in advance. God decided in advance that all we who believe in him would spend eternity with him in Christ. Praise God. Now, recognize that probably not for Providence Reformed Church, but for a lot of people, that is a difficult doctrine to grasp. Took me years of just uh, being corrected by the scriptures to grasp that I was predestined for this inheritance. But there is a larger principle of God's sovereignty that's stated in verse 11, that if you can embrace this larger principle, then you should be able to embrace that God has predestined you for salvation. And that is that God ordains everything. He ordains everything. Verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's unpack that. What is counsel of his will? If you don't use the ESV, you may, you may have a different translation like the purpose of his will, the decision of his will. The idea here is that it's whatever he decided he wanted to do. God works all things according to what he decided he wanted to do. So, Christian, if he decided that you would be saved and spend eternity with him, then nothing in history, including your rotten heart, can prevent that. This is how it's certain that nothing can separate you from the love of God, Romans 8, 38 through 39. If God was the one who decided that you would make it to the end, then the reason you make it to the end is because he has decided that. And that is why nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, someone might mistake this verse and philosophize that perhaps that 
maybe God is an expert in damage control. So for example, in other words, uh, he doesn't ordain the evil act, but it happens and he just kind of works it into his plan. Well, let's see what else the scriptures say. Lamentations 3, Lamentations 3. In this chapter, the author is, is writing about God's faithfulness, even in our affliction. And then in verses 31 and 32 of Lamentations 3, the author writes, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This author recognizes that God causes grief. And if that's not clear enough, verses 37 through 38, he says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? We all make decrees, even if we don't verbalize it, right? So for example, you might, you might say that after church today, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take a bath. That may well come to pass, but it might not. Maybe you get into a fender bender with the Petersons in the parking lot, and that just throws off your whole afternoon. Maybe you get home and the water's out, right? But here's one thing that we know for certain. You will take a bath if the Lord has commanded it, if the Lord has ordained that you will. Now, what about the nations that would have acted against Israel at the time of the writing of Lamentations. Could they decide to defeat Israel without God's say-so? Absolutely not. That would only come to pass if God commanded it. And just in case the reader might assume that God only commands or ordains good things, verse 38 again, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come in the same way that he ordains good things he also ordains bad things again he doesn't force people to do bad things but he allows them to but he decides to allow them to one example would be job does god command satan to bring calamity to job does he ordain that No and yes. No in the sense that God would not tempt Satan or commend it or command him to do that, but yes in the sense that God gives Satan permission on purpose. Job 1.12, God says to Satan, and this is after, by the way, Satan tells God, you know, Job is only following you because he is living it up. If he was suffering, he would deny you. And God says to Satan in Job 1.12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. If God does not allow Satan to touch Job, Satan doesn't touch Job. But he grants permission, but only up to a point. He says to Satan, You can take all that Job has, but you cannot harm him directly. And guess what? Satan obeys We won't exposit every single verse that that teaches that God ordains everything, but listen to this list in rapid fire. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked 
for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he will. Proverbs 29, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Isaiah 46, 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And Daniel 4:35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There is much more. But hopefully you get the idea that God ordains everything, including evil. In addition to the Bible saying that, B, there are examples of this all over Scripture. There are examples of this all over Scripture. So let's do this chronologically. We'll start with the fall. But before the fall, there's also this this plan of redemption that, that God has already established before creation. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, our names were written in the book of life of the Lamb before the foundation of the world. So we need to have that in view when we look at the fall. Genesis 3, the second worst thing that has happened in human history. After God commands Adam and Eve to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes and tempts Eve, who in turn tempts Adam, and they break God's commandment. Question, did God ordain that to happen? He must have. He must have. If God had, before Adam and Eve, purposed to save people from their sins, then the fall had to happen. Was there ever a chance that Adam and Eve would have just perfectly obeyed? It cannot be. Otherwise, God's plan of redemption that he established before the foundation of the world would have been quashed. Now, how did, how did God ensure that this would happen without directly tempting Adam and Eve? Well, God could have preserved the real choice of Adam and Eve while making the tree of the knowledge of good and evil harder to access. He could have put that tree on a high mountain, guarded by cherubim, but he didn't do that. Instead, the tree was, Genesis 2.9 says, in the midst of the garden. God was not obligated to allow the serpent to be there in the garden. Did God know the serpent was there? Of course. He knowingly allowed it to be there. God also didn't have to make the serpent be able to speak. He didn't have to make the tree, according to Genesis 3, 6, a delight to the eyes. He could have made it look awful. God could have prevented the fall without encroaching on Adam and Eve's wills, but he chose not to. He chose not to on purpose, because without the fall, there is no redemption. Then there's Joseph, fast-forwarding in Genesis Joseph's brothers are jealous of their father's favor toward him and his fancy new coat. 
So they plot to kill him. Instead, they they resort to selling him off to slavery. God blesses Joseph's work under slavery, and that leads to another act of evil done toward Joseph, a false accusation of sexual assault from his master's wife, getting Joseph thrown to prison. In prison, Joseph interprets a pair of dreams, which, which leads to one of those dreamers eventually, too late, but telling Pharaoh about Joseph. And that leads to Joseph's being made Pharaoh's right-hand man, preparing Egypt for a major famine ahead. And that leads to God's people moving to Egypt to survive the famine because Egypt had extra stores. Well, isn't that lucky? Absolutely not. Jacob, later on in Genesis 49 The father of Joseph and his treacherous brothers, Jacob, dies. And that makes Joseph's brothers think that this is it for them. The only reason Joseph is holding back is because dad's still alive, but now dad's gone. We're done for. But Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20. Genesis 50, 19 through 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice that word, meant. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Other translations say planned or intended. That's the idea. What they, his brothers, had intended for evil, God had intended it for good. Now, Hebrew is a difficult language, but Joseph could have easily said, God used it for good. What you meant for evil, God used for good. But instead, he says that God meant it for good. He planned it for good. So here's what did not happen. Here's what did not happen. Joseph's brothers throw Joseph into the well, and then God says, how can I use this? How can I make the best out of this terrible situation? No, God said, Something like, I will orchestrate everything that leads up to these brothers' betrayal and purposely allow this betrayal to happen. Why? To save many lives, including theirs, years from now, to the praise of my glory. And then Joseph got to see the outcome of everything. Joseph could look back and he could say to God, Ah, I see what you were doing that day when my brothers threw me into that well. God saved many people as a result of that one evil act. A generation later, after Joseph and his brothers and Pharaoh died, a new Pharaoh came and he had no regard, no respect for Joseph, no respect for God's people. They were multiplying and they were fearful that that the Jews would overtake. And so Pharaoh puts them under slave labor. Eventually, God raises up Moses to liberate his people from Egypt. Through Moses and Aaron, God warns Pharaoh time and time again with plagues, and he executes them time and time again against the people of Egypt. And each time, Pharaoh is annoyed but unimpressed. He refuses to let God's people go. It's only after the tenth and final plague that Pharaoh relents. Question. Couldn't God have started with a tenth plague? 
We know this for sure. God wasn't improvising. He wasn't coming up with nine bad ideas before getting to the right one. Exodus 7, 2 through 5. God says to Moses, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God not only foretold Pharaoh's rejection, he ordained it. He would harden Pharaoh's heart. And I remember struggling with this passage and looked at my little life application Bible study note and it said, well, that's just how people thought back then. And I was like, phew. There's other passages that we like to run to that, that say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But that by no means diminishes God's sovereignty over that. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by purposely allowing Pharaoh to harden his own heart against God. Couldn't God have stopped Pharaoh from doing that? Couldn't he have softened Pharaoh's heart like he softened your and my heart? Of course, but he purposely did not. Why not? So that God could multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Why did God do that? In Exodus 9:16, God says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God ordained Pharaoh's evil. God ordained Pharaoh's hardness in order to fulfill his purpose that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. After the Exodus, throughout the history of God's people, God's people would disobey God. And one of the ways that God would discipline his people is through the evil actions of other nations. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 9 is an example. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 9. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Because of Judah's disobedience, God sent for an evil king, sent for an evil king to destroy Jerusalem and to take the people captive for 70 years. If you're not convinced that that was an evil act, God would actually then punish Babylon, according to verse 12, because those acts against God's people were indeed evil. How did God send Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar? Not by tempting Nebuchadnezzar to do it, not by commanding or enticing him to do it, but by orchestrating all of the events leading up to the invasion and purposefully allowing it to happen. By the way, I was reminded by a brother here in the church that it was this judgment and judgments like it that caused the, the, the spreading, the diaspora of God's people all over the known world. And it was this that caused synagogues to be everywhere. And that paved the way for what? 
Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. He'd go from town to town, start at the synagogue, and then after that, he would go out to the marketplace. Something similar happened in the New Testament in Acts 7. Acts 7. So Stephen has just preached Christ to the crowd. Uh, he's about to be stoned to death. Then in Acts 7, 55 through 56, it says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then shortly after that, Stephen died. He became the first martyr of the Christian church, death by stoning. Now, when this passage says that Jesus is standing, looking down at Stephen, this is generally understood as Christ's concern and care for his disciple in his time of need. But could not the Christ, standing at the right hand of the Father, send down a legion of angels to prevent Stephen's stoning from happening? Of course. Of course he could have. But he chose not to. Why? Well, we see one result of it in chapter 8, verses 1 through 1 and 4 of Acts, Acts 8, 1 and 4. And Saul, that is Paul, approved his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Before Stephen died, they were not doing this. Uh, there's a, a great book that uh, Pastor Travis turned me on to called Accidental Pharisees. And it points out that, that we sometimes laud the church at Jerusalem. Man, they, were just, they devoted themselves to the scriptures, uh, the prayers, the Lord's or, uh, breaking of bread and the fellowship. They, were, they just had it going on in Jerusalem. But they weren't perfect. They hadn't gone out to do the Great Commission. They were in this holy huddle in Jerusalem waiting for the Lord's return. But God uses the evil murder of Stephen to scatter his people. And wherever they scattered, they didn't hide. They preached Christ. And through that, people were saved. There are many other examples in the scriptures, but the last one that we'll look at before we consider why this is all a good thing is the ultimate example. It is the example of both the most evil act in history and the most wonderful result. It is the example that brings us, when we think about it, the deepest sorrow and incomparable joy, and that's the crucifixion. Acts 2, 23, Peter is speaking to the crowd on Pentecost. He says to them, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So according to this verse, who crucified our Lord and Savior? The Romans. Pilate ordered his men to flog and then crucify Jesus. But also, according to this verse, the unbelieving Jews who pressured Pilate to do it. But who is the ultimate cause of Christ's crucifixion? God himself. Jesus was, Acts 2.23 says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And a lot of times people will want to try to pit God's planning and his foreknowledge against each other. 
but you can't do that. They're friends. Can't, you can't make friends fight. They work hand in hand. It's not enough to say that God simply knew that they were going to crucify Jesus. He knew it, and that was part of his plan. God could have absolutely prevented the crucifixion. In fact, Jesus says as much in Matthew 26, 53. They're at Gethsemane. Peter cuts off somebody's ear trying to stop the crucifixion. Jesus says, stop. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It's not that God couldn't prevent it because he didn't want to encroach on free will. He purposely orchestrated everything to lead up to Christ's crucifixion and allowed the Roman soldiers to lift up his son on a rugged cross. It was the vilest act of evil for the greatest good imaginable. Now Peter then explains in that passage why God did this. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then verses 37 and 38, hearing this, the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 41 tells us, so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. God ordained the most evil act in history in order to save those 3,000 people and billions of people after them, including you, if you believe in him. You're a sinner like they were. You may as well have stood with them that crowd on the day of Christ's death, screaming, crucify him. Apart from Christ, you deserve God's wrath on you for all of your sins. But if you trust in him, even if you start today trusting in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are saved. So we see how it is that God ordains evil. Why is it a good thing? Why is it a good thing? Three reasons more quickly about why this is a good thing. A, you are saved because God ordained evil. You are saved because God ordained evil. As we've seen in in this sermon, all of the evil acts that God ordained throughout history were leading up to and culminated in Jesus Christ. If Adam and Eve don't fall, there's no need for Jesus. If Joseph's brothers don't sin against Joseph, God's people are dead and the promise fails. They starve to death. If Pharaoh caves in, God's name isn't proclaimed all over the world. If Nebuchadnezzar doesn't destroy Jerusalem, then the Jews aren't spread out to facilitate the spread of the gospel to all nations. If the mob doesn't stone Stephen, the gospel stays in Jerusalem. And if Christ's murderers don't carry out their foul plans, there is no atonement for your sins. So praise God that he ordains evil, because if he didn't, every single one of us would still be on our hell-bound race. You're saved because God ordained evil. B, you are being saved because God ordains evil. You're being saved 
because God ordains evil. Romans 8, 28, one of our favorite verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things together for your good, specifically for those who love him and are his. All things includes the evil that's done against you. All things. And then Paul elaborates on the good that he's talking about. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're a Christian here today, Everything that happens to you, including the worst things, is meant to conform you into Christ's image. And this process of sanctification is a necessary one in between justification and glorification. In other words, if you have been saved before you can be finally saved in the end, you must continue to be saved through God's process of making you more like Jesus Christ. And that's all God, by the way, and it will happen if you have been justified. So one of the means that he uses to that end is the evil that's done against you. So even in your weeping and even in your lamenting, praise God for those awful things that happen to you because he is saving you through them. And then see, you will glory in God because God ordains evil. You will glory in God because God ordains evil. Just as Joseph was able to glorify God for the evil done against him, so we will be able to glorify God for all the evil done throughout our personal history and all the evil done throughout history as a whole. Romans 9. In Romans 9, Paul has just made the argument that God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And then in verse 19 of Romans 9, he anticipates an objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? By the way, the fact that that objection is there makes it clear what Paul is saying, that he's suggesting that it's ultimately up to God what people choose to do. And then Paul's answer in verse 20 and 23. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? There are people who do evil, and they will continue to do evil, and God is patiently enduring them. Why? To make known to us who believe in him his glory. We get a glimpse of this idea in the example of Pharaoh earlier. Why did God patiently endure Pharaoh? To make known the riches of his glory. The Israelites, after seeing what God did, beheld God's glory in saving them and defeating their captors, and they praised him for centuries to come. Even Rahab, the, the reason that she gives for why she sides with the spies 
one of the reasons is because she has heard of what God did in crushing their enemies at the Red Sea. Even now, we look at Exodus and we marvel at God's mercy toward Israel and wrath toward those who would enslave them. That's what the end will be like. All those who refuse Jesus Christ and act against him and his church will finally face the just wrath that they deserve. It's as if they are walking comfortably at the bottom of the sea right now, the walls of God's wrath being withheld by him, but it will finally come down on them and crush them as they justly deserve. And just as God's people have gloried in God since the Exodus, so will we eternally glory in him for his eternal deliverance, his final exodus of his people and the destruction of his enemies. In order for those Israelites in the Exodus to glory in God's deliverance, they needed to see the great evil that was done against them in contrast. And in the same way, in order for us to glory in God's deliverance, we too need to see the great evil throughout history. So God ordains evil for his glory, and we as his people take great delight in beholding God's glory. So we know that God ordains evil. We see in the scriptures that that God ordains absolutely everything, including evil. And we've seen in the scriptures witness after witness to prove that to us. And we've now realized why that's a good thing. We've realized that without evil, we wouldn't be saved, we wouldn't be being saved, and we would miss out on beholding God's glory forever. Now, how can we apply that to the examples that we looked at in the beginning? How can we be comforted that God ordained 9-11, that God ordained how the evacuation at Kabul went down, and God ordained your own personal tragedies? Well, with 9-11, if we know that God ordained it, and if we know that God is good, then we know that ultimately he ordained 9-11 for greater good purposes. We definitely won't see and understand every good purpose here on earth. Job didn't get an answer. He didn't say, well, you see, Job, what happened was we were... But one day, it'll make sense to us. And we'll say, ah, God... I see now what you were doing. But what we do know is that for some people, they came to Christ as a result of 9-11. The same is true for the evacuation at Kabul. There are Christians in country right now who are growing in their faith and in their love for Christ because they need to trust in him for the outcome of this terrible thing. As for our personal tragedies, in addition to what I've said about the other two, those who wrong us will glorify God in the end, one way or the other. Either Christ will have mercy on them and save them in spite of their awful past like he did us, or they will face the wrath of God that they deserve for what they did to you and for countless other sins against God. In closing, listen to these Four short testimonies from brothers and sisters. First one, I was abused heavily by my stepmom from ages three through nine. Bad physical abuse along with mental. She had two kids of her own that got treated like royalty 
I ended up marrying a woman who had two kids from a previous marriage. I adopted them, then we had two of our own together. What I went through as a child has impacted my parenting in more ways than I'll probably ever realize, and prayerfully it's all, or most all, for the better. The second one. My atheist father was detached and uninvolved. This resulted in primarily my Christian stepmother raising me. Third, my mother was an adulterer, which led to my dad divorcing and seeking Christ. Through the destruction of the family, I was made aware of what the gospel was. And then fourth, this fourth one wasn't due to an evil act directly, but it's part of living in a fallen world. Our eldest son was diagnosed with a terminal genetic condition just before his second birthday. It has drawn us closer to God and taught us to lean not on our own understanding of his, I'm sorry, to, to lean on our understanding of his sovereignty and will. So these brothers and sisters have seen how God ordains evil in their life for his glory and for their good. Sometimes we won't be able to see that. We won't clearly see all or any of the reasons. But given these countless examples from the Bible and from the testimonies of the church throughout history, and based on what we know about God's character, we can trust him in every circumstance, even the worst ones, knowing that he will work all things for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we need this doctrine. We need it not for the sake of the doctrine, but because we will face suffering in this world. You've said as much, your son said, that in this world you will have trouble, and we know it, Lord. We know it in a personal way. And we need to know from your word, God, that you are in control and that you have ordained these things for our good and for your glory. In our weakest moments, we will doubt you, Lord. Forgive us. But give us strength to remember what you have taught us and to be comforted by your incredible sovereignty and goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.